Greetings, church. My name is Jason. I am one of the elders at Church in the Square. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 will be in verse 5 today. Romans chapter 1, verse 5, continuing our study of God's Word in this great book. A couple of things before we jump into the Word today. Prayer gathering is happening every Thursday at 8 p.m., led by our deacons, and so please make sure to join us every Thursday, 8 p.m., led by our deacons. You have got to be there. Uh, we'd love for you to join us. And also, members, we have a gathering coming up so that we can continue to stay connected, unified, encouraged during this uh, COVID-19 situation. So please uh, mark your calendars June 7th at 7 p.m. June 7th, 7 p.m. will be our next members gathering. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. You know, in studying for this particular portion of Scripture, it was revealed to me, or rather, you know, I came into contact again with this misconception that we often have about things like obedience and faith, or in a manner of speaking, truth and beauty. We see these ideas as, as disconnected. When we think about truth and ideas of, of facts and of knowledge, we often see them as very different than things like beauty or something of inspiration, something that catches our eye and heart, we see as disconnected from that which captures our intellect or, or speaks to us at the level of our thoughts. See, art, for instance, is, is beautiful. Gravity, we may think, well, that's just, that's just truth. But when you uh, have experienced something good, like a, like a song, some kind of art, that really pulls something out of your story, something that moves you in a way. It goes beyond just beauty, and it, and it comes into the level of truth. In fact, good art tells the truth. It, something that is beautiful actually speaks about what is really happening, what's going uh, on in our, in our actual lives. And something like gravity, when you really think about it, something that is just truth and factual, something uh, scientific like this, it's actually consistent. It's steady. And every morning that you wake up, it's faithful, if you will, to continue to pull with the exact same measurements and uh, scales and weights and all of this. I have no idea what goes into gravity, but apparently it's consistent every single day. And so in that, there's this kind of beauty and, and rhythm and routine, if you will. And so it actually is quite, frankly, it's really beautiful. And, and so what we, I think, realize is that truth and beauty are incredible allies God's nature, if you remember, we looked at God's nature last week, and we understood that even within himself, there's truth and beauty and perfect harmony in Father, Son, and Spirit. Though, though God exists and he is real, he is reality, he is truth, there's, there's actually love within himself between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Love is enjoyed and has been enjoyed from eternity past and will be enjoyed within the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit forever. And so within God's, even within God's nature, we see elements of truth, things that are factual. This is where we get our doctrine, our theology. And yet he's also beautiful. When you behold him, when you enjoy his glory and relationship with him, it goes well beyond simply intellectual ascent. You see, truth and beauty are not only meant to be together, but they're meant to be together because that's who God is. And so when it comes to the Christian life, we often divorce these two things. Things like obedience and faith, things like duty and relationship, doctrine and praxis, or the way that we actually live our lives. And, and what I think that the Apostle Paul will help us see today as he speaks from Romans 1 verse 5, 
He'll help us to understand that we can't do that. See, today I want to talk to us about beauty and truth. I want to talk to us about obedience and faith and why God never meant for those things to be pulled apart. So let's pray and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you because as the disciples famously said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And today we need a word from our Heavenly Father. We don't treat that tritely. We don't, we don't treat it as a matter of convenience. We don't treat it as something that you owe us because we've asked for it or because we're showing up and we're here. Father, we beseech you, we beg of you, we plead and we cry out, would you speak to us? Because your word fills us up. Your word sustains us. Your word is a light to our feet, lamp to our path. And so, Father, would you illuminate the scriptures by your spirit? Would you reveal, shine brightly through them so that we would see you, that we'd know you, that in the middle of an unprecedented season, we still need the same thing. We need God. We need you. And so we just ask, Father, make us aware of our great need for you. Help us to behold your character. And as a result of beholding your character, knowing who you are, would you transform us in the moment as we gather with our groups, as we gather around the table with our families, perhaps, or individually, as we have walked through the liturgy, as we are coming to the sermon, Father, a time in your word together, we pray that you would shape us, you'd sharpen us, you'd correct us, you'd teach us, you would love us, Father, that you would unite us even as a people. And so, Father, we, we beg of you in the midst of this, would you heal the sick? Would you comfort the hurting? Would you befriend and be near to the lonely? Would you fill up those whose energy is depleted? Would you give wisdom to those who are making decisions? Would you bring peace where there's conflict? Would you restore what's been broken? You're the God who does all of that and more. And so we come to you and we trust you. We come to your word because this is where we behold eternal things. It's through your word And so help me to be clear, help me to be responsible with your word. And I pray for us as a church that, Father, ultimately that we would look to you, we'd be transformed by you, then we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called in obedience and in faith. We ask that in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, to this point in Romans, Paul has introduced himself and now he is in the middle in verse five of introducing Christ more exactly in in who he is. And and so Paul is always keeping in mind as he's doing this, his uh, Roman readers who would have been Jewish, coming from a heritage of trusting, believing, waiting for the Messiah, and those who are Gentiles. And probably the majority of them are Gentiles here, as he writes in about 57 um, AD to the first century church, newly established in Rome. And Paul is, is writing... He's writing to them, as we've looked at over the past uh, number of weeks, as we come now to week six in our, in our study, he, he's writing to them from the very beginning about the nature of God, the nature of, of Jesus in particular as the gospel. If you remember, Paul is not writing about a message or, or information. Christianity is not mainly and mostly about teachings and, and ideas and practices and doctrines and, and this. Christianity is about a person. It's, it's about Christ. And so now Paul is introducing us to Christ because this is what this whole thing is about. 
And so we've covered the first four verses. Today we come to the fifth. Look at it with me. Romans chapter one, verse five. Through whom, and we'll have to understand who, who that whom is, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And he, he'll go on in, in verse six. See, we, we actually, we won't have time to go over this entire verse today. We will look at the transition that, that Paul makes from verses three and four uh, into verse five, and then we'll settle most of our time on that singular phrase with those two ideas that, that ultimately he has been called to be an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith, the obedience of faith. And so to help us, let's just refresh our recollection. That's our primary verse, but let's look at it in context. Look back, verse one, Romans chapter one. Let's read it within this context of the first four verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart uh, for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning the son, his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now our primary verse, primary text today, through whom, that's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Paul writes through whom, and when we see it within the context of verses three and four, it's clear that we can see, it's clearly seen that Jesus Christ is the one who is still in focus here. So what Paul is going to talk about, what he receives, he's receiving it through Christ. Now, even though Paul then speaks in a plural sense, it's best to understand that he's actually speaking in this, this rare singular plural form, or as some have called it, the apostolic we. See, beforehand, as we read in the context, and as we'll continue to read through Romans, Paul keeps himself in focus when he talks about apostleship. He defends his apostleship. He writes about himself with this apostolic authority given to him by Jesus. And so everything that he has, he has received from Jesus as an apostle. In particular, he understands that he has received that personal calling as well as this vocational calling by grace. Did you notice that? Make sure that your eyes, your eyes see it. And through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And really those words are easily and perhaps best taken in the original language as this gracious apostleship. What he has received, he has not earned. What he has received, he has received by grace. And what he has received is his apostolic calling to define the gospel, to herald the goodness and graciousness and power of the resurrected Lord, and to do so among all peoples, particularly the Jew and the Gentile is what he keeps in mind. And so grace comes in to focus here. And grace ultimately is the unmerited favor of God. It's, it's God's affection that, which has not been, nor could it ever been earned, and yet it's bestowed upon people in, in an unmerited, unearned way. See, Paul's preaching and his writing are teeming with grace. This is what he focuses on. Grace by faith. This is how we understand the gospel. This is how we receive the gospel. Paul 
keeps this so clearly at the center of his writing. And the reason he has kept it at the center of his writing, the reason he is able to keep it at the center of his writing is because he sees it at the center of his story. See, grace is always in focus for Paul because grace was the thing that made him who he is. And when we understand who we are by grace, we will be those who bestow grace and and give grace generously to others. Those of us who have been affected, have been beneficiaries of grace, naturally and graciously extend grace to others. And, And therefore, it's not surprising to read that Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 hears the voice of Jesus even speaking to him, saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. Church in the square, the grace of our Lord is sufficient. It is enough. It is whole. It is full. It is all you need. The unmerited favor of God. See, Paul was well acquainted with grace, and so it became woven within the very fabric of his apostolic ministry. His salvation and his apostleship, both matters of grace. Therefore, he uses that really key word there. Did you notice? He says that he received it. He didn't go and earn it. He didn't go and find it. He didn't go and take it from somebody else. He received it as a gift. He received it as something that was given to him by someone else who possessed it. This grace came directly through Jesus Christ, the Lord. So Paul says, through the Son, Jesus Christ, he has been given a gracious apostleship. This certainly is then the lens that Paul continues on in Romans chapter, throughout Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Why don't we just flip there? Flip to the right a little bit so that we can see that Paul sees grace as particularly instructive for the entirety of his apostolic ministry. So what he does, what he teaches, where he goes, why he goes there, he goes by grace, he comes to speak grace, and he comes to operate in the manner of grace. Romans chapter 12, verse three, for by the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to you, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. His vocation was afforded to him by grace, and so Paul is ministering by grace. Friends, this is so important. This is really key. If we understand that the life you and I have in Christ has truly been given to us by grace, then the things that we say and the things that we do will be instructed, will be motivated by this same grace, because how we are won by Jesus is how we are continually made mature in Christ. We are saved by grace, we're sanctified by his grace. Marvadon, in her reflection on Romans chapter 12, verse 3, in her book, Truly the Community, she says this, she writes that grace is God's overflowing, infinitely wise love, freely given, though undeserved, and never repayable. Grace is God's love freely given. This is one of those ideas, isn't it? That perhaps we hear it and that sounds nice, but how we can often operate is that I know that I've been saved by grace, but now I'm going to live as though 
I want to prove to God that that was a worthy investment, that I am a worthy investment. God, you made a good decision in saving me. Therefore, I'm not going to live by grace. I'm going to live to display that your grace was a good idea to give me because it's good to have me on your team. And so we hustle. Even right now, during this pandemic, we find more to do. We're weary when we're not as productive as we should be. And when we rest, we think we should be doing more. When we're doing more, we feel guilty that we're not doing the right things the right way. And we get overwhelmed with all of this. Many of us, I imagine, are overwhelmed. And this grace, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that it's sufficient, it means it settles us. That I don't have to go out and make my identity happen and make my worth happen every day. I actually receive it by grace and then I operate out of grace in a way that is not worried, in a way that is peaceable, in a way that is patient and kind. Has the, it has the fruit of the Spirit. See, so Paul was so affected by this freely given love of God that it marked his life's purpose. It was the way that he did his work. See, remember how in the past couple of weeks that we've talked about Christians are those who order their lives or organize their lives around the promises of God. Um, That's what Paul did. Paul ordered his life and he organized his life around the promises of God, namely the fulfilled promise, the revealed promise, the incarnate promise, Jesus Christ. Christ, the one who had bestowed this grace upon Paul. So he, he's ultimately, what Christians do is we center our lives around Christ because he is the centerpiece of our Christian faith. He is the centerpiece of our life. He has always had a reason then. God, God always has a reason for why he has saved us and it is by his grace that he has saved us and it's for his grace that he has saved us, that we would extend that um, unmerited love, that we would extend that unmerited love to others See, this is what Paul understands. This is, this is his aim. In his apostolic ministry that was given to him by grace, he desires, look, look back, flip back to the left at Romans chapter one, verse five. He desires to have an apostolic ministry that brings about the obedience of faith. That brings about the obedience of faith. That's the idea that we need to commit ourselves to today. That, that's the understanding. Obedience to faith in this context of grace. What actually is it? What is obedience of faith. See, Paul sees it as elemental, part of the very foundation and fabric of the Christian life. First, we'll look at the word faith. The word faith, pistis, in the original language is found in what's called the genitive case in the Greek language. And most of the New Testament is written in uh, ancient Greek. And and a genitive noun has many different translations. And whenever a genitive noun shows up uh, with a comparing noun that we have to, paired with another noun, we have to make a decision about how it ought to be translated. Think about the word of. That word of, even in the English language, could be translated in a number of different ways. Um, And this, I think, help us understand the genitive case. Of can communicate possession. In, in other words, if you think about obedience and faith with that, that word obedience of faith, if, if it's about possession, it's obedience which belongs to faith. It, it also, that, that word of, could communicate an attribute, a faith which is obedient, a faith which is obedient. It can also communicate more as a description, like obedience which is characterized or demonstrated by faith. Or it could communicate source, obedience, which springs from faith. Obedience that comes out of, that is birthed out of faith. There there are many others, but I think that we we get the point. This this genitive case really, I think, is best 
understood within that concept of of how can we translate it and what decisions do we need to make and it skews it it changes it tweaks a little bit of the interpretation our understanding of that particular idea and it's so central for Paul that we ought to take our time in understanding it and so thinking about the preceding context and overall what Paul will be communicating I think it's best to understand obedience of faith as two things which are concurrently produced by the gospel Paul's apostolic ministry to produce these things concurrently. Because when we look at it at this Greek or elemental level within the text, it seems that obedience is modifying faith as much as faith is modifying obedience. Or as one uh, commentator put it, obedience always leads to faith and faith always leads to obedience. Obedience always leads to faith and faith always leads to obedience. And taken within this context, it's directly connected, both ideas directly connected to the nature of Christ. See, to know Jesus as the Son as, and as the Messiah is to have faith in him. Ancient Israel was waiting for the Messiah. And so to, to trust in Jesus, to have faith in Jesus is to trust that he is the promised one, the anointed one, the Christ. So it comes even from his character. How about obedience? To know Jesus, the Son, as Lord is to be one who submits to his lordship, who bows the knee to King Jesus and obeys his will and obeys his word. And so what Paul is telling his Roman readers is that, that they need to hear that Jesus is Lord and you need to obey him and not Caesar. What Paul is telling his Jewish readers is that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the one for whom you were, you, you had faith and now in whom you should place your faith. So he's speaking to both of his audience members and he is speaking to them in a singular idea of this obedience of faith because faith and obedience were always meant together like meant to be together like truth and beauty. See it's this intrinsic connection between obedience and faith and it's really the lifeblood of Romans. It's the lifeblood of blood of Romans because it really is the impetus that we find is true of the Christian life throughout all of scripture. Think about James' famous words. In, in, in his uh, second chapter, James writes that faith without works is what? It's dead. And he says it actually two times in that chapter, in verse 17 and in verse 26, a faith without obedience is dead. What he, what he means to say is that spiritual ascent is so much more than simply acknowledging intellectual facts. It's more than acknowledging truth and ideas and, and information about who God is. It, it ought to materialize in action, in activity, in submission, in, in works of righteousness that have been produced by faith. This is what James gets a bad rap for often, but this is exactly what Paul is saying as well, that they agree with one another, these two apostles. And it's not just in James' writing, but when we think about uh, John's writing as well. So 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and six, he, he says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Claiming, brothers and sisters, please hear me, claiming to know the Lord will always result in obeying the Lord. Let that settle in. Claiming to know the Lord, John writes, will always result in obeying the Lord. 
See, many of us, I think, can have a tendency to choose one or the other, to dabble in both, to claim that we know him but not obey him. See, faith and obedience are bound together. These two cannot be pulled apart. And even in the level of grammar and syntax and the way that Paul selected the language that he would first describe this idea in his introduction in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he does so by helping us to see that these two cannot, should not, must not, will never be pulled apart. Obedience will lead to faith and faith will lead to obedience. They will always come in concert and in harmony with one another. And in doing so, Paul really sets the trajectory for his entire letter. In fact, some suggest that verse 5, and really even just this particular phrase in verse 5, summarizes the entire letter of Romans. So let's take just a look at the first few chapters, all the way through uh, chapter 6, at how this particular idea of faith and obedience, obedience and faith, bound together, truth and beauty, Remember, this is coming from the nature of God, all bound up together. How this then plays out in Paul's entire letter. See, in the first few movements of Romans, where, where we are uh, now, where we'll be for a minute, uh, especially this latter half of chapter one and, and through chapter three, Paul is emphatic that all have failed the righteousness of God. In other words, we have not had faith and we have not obeyed. All have fallen short. Our lack of faith and our lack of obedience is sin. It's falling short of the glory of God. It is not honoring him. And therefore, it is a cosmic separation from God. Our lack of obedience, our lack of faith, all of us and all of humanity. This is what Paul commits himself to through chapter 1 and 2 and halfway through chapter 3. And turn to chapter 3, verse 21. Because here's where a bit of a shift takes place, where he begins to uh, put forth his way of reconciliation or his articulation of it, rather. Romans 3, verse 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, what? What's that word? Believe, for there is no distinction. And he goes on, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, in Christ, And through his righteousness, a way is made for us, not around obedience, not around faith, but Jesus, the faithful one who is obedient to the Father's will, paves a way of his righteousness despite our lack of faith and obedience because of our lack of faith and obedience, and he restores and heals and makes right. And then we get to chapter four, and we're introduced to to Abraham, or rather reintroduced to him from the Old Testament. Abraham's story makes it clear that law and works are not going to save. Law and works are not what is central to the Christian life, but ultimately that it's faith, that the law and the uh, works of righteousness are not things that will produce holiness in and of ourselves, that ultimately those things only cause separation. But God has freely loved us and he has given us this faith by his grace, which is Romans 4, verse 13. And then when we get to uh, chapter 5, verse 1, look at it with me. Chapter 5, verse 1, we shouldn't be surprised to hear Paul say this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. How? Through what? Through faith through believing, through trusting, through surrender to him. See, the way we have been uh, made right 
is the way that Paul uh, has been called himself a dis- dis- or an apostle. It's been by grace through faith. But this should not lead us to arrogance or complacency. It shouldn't puff us up. See, we've been, we're the ones who've been selected. We're the ones who've been elected. We're the ones who have been chosen and saved. As if grace and faith somehow will not lead us to submission or to contrition before God. See, because of Romans chapter 5, we're prepared for the complement, if you will, of Romans chapter 6. The Christian life is now described as a spiritual, it's not, it's rather not described as like the spiritual free-for-all. Well, because you've been saved by grace through faith, now you can do as you please. But rather by Romans chapter 6, we're given an instruction about what it means to not just be a people of faith, but a people of obedience. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. Chapter 6, verse 15. Again, we've been introduced to the way out of our problem, lack of obedience, lack of faith through the righteousness, faithfulness, obedience of Jesus. In chapter four, gives us a picture, uh, even all the way back to Abraham, that it is grace through faith. In chapter five, says it is faith that ultimately welcomes us into relationship with God. And this gives us peace with God. And now chapter six comes to complement with a picture of obedience. What then? Chapter six, verse 15. Are we to sin because we are no longer under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you are present, you present yourself rather to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So so ultimately, let's, let's not miss this. This is so good for us to hear that the life of faith that is instituted by grace is not a life of lawlessness, is not a life now that in, in faith of God, as if it could lead to this, that faith in God and believing in him and trusting in him by grace would lead us to then get to do as we please. Paul says no, by no means, a thousand times no. He is saying grace is what binds us to righteousness and now we have become slaves to righteousness and we become obedient from the heart. A transformation has taken place where we had no faith and no obedience. Now in Christ, we are to be a people who have an obedient faith and a faithful obedience. These two are always meant to be together. And so Martin Luther, the famous 15th century reformer, said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is always complemented by obedience. This is so critical and so practical, I think, also for our faith. You see, if being a Christian was merely about being obedient, we would be devastated when we were not obedient, when we fell short, when we were not righteous. See, even this week, if obedience was the thing that was going to bring you hope and joy and faithfulness or, and ultimately fruitfulness and flourishing in life, what would you do even this week if you didn't obey? You'd have to just try again. You'd have to keep trying again and hope that you string together enough righteousness, apparently by the end of your life, that would make God glad. We can't do it. It's hopelessness. And if it was merely about faith, if the Christian life was merely about faith, then it would be aimless. It would be sort of this ethereal ascent to God who is invisible. We have no, no word to follow, no, no mandates, no righteousness by which to live our lives in order to demonstrate 
uh, our faith and in order to become more like Christ in this life. So when my aim is only obedience, we will miss faith and will fall short of ultimately believing that when we fall short in obedience, that there is righteousness, there's forgiveness, there's healing, and there's there's love and there's joy. And that if it's merely faith, then I lack uh, purpose and I lack clarity about how I am supposed to live this life. And the hope that we find then is in God's character alone, that in his character, we find him to be worthy of both obedience and faithfulness. We find him to be worthy of a kind of obedience which is faithful and a kind of faith which is obedient, a kind of obedience that leads to faith and a kind of faith that leads to obedience. See, let, let's think about obedience first. We can obey God because he's clear. God is clear in that he communicates who he is and what he expects from his word. We should obey God because he is Lord. We ought to bow the knee simply because of his nature. He is deserving and due our utter and complete surrender. Anything else is sinful and idolatrous. We don't just kind of obey him. We fully surrender ourselves and obey him. And we should do it because of who he is. And thirdly, we, we are blessed when we obey God because he's good. So this kind of obedience that the Lord describes throughout all of scripture and Paul describes here in Romans, which is supported through the rest of the Bible, is a kind of obedience that results from a relationship with a God who we can obey because he's clear, a God we should obey because he's Lord, and a God that we are blessed to obey because he is good. It is for our good. Not only that, but let's think about faith. We can believe God because he is real and he's revealed himself to us. We, we are not searching in some sort of naive and nebulous spirituality trying to lock our hearts and our minds onto some God we cannot quite nail down or figure out. We can believe God because he is real and he has revealed himself to us. We should have faith in God because it makes the most sense. It makes the most sense to believe in a God. When we look at our existence and we even look at the longings of our heart, to see that those longings, whether it's for love or being known or being cared for or being protected, of even a longing for eternality, all of those things only find logical sustenance in God's character. And so we should believe or have faith in God because that makes the most sense. Not only so, but we're blessed. We are blessed when we have faith in God because he actually cares for us. See, faith is really about entrusting ourselves to someone. And, and the power of faith does not come down to our faithfulness, and it does not come down to even our passion in the one in whom we are placing our faith. The power of faith, the strength of our faith, is based upon the strength of the one in whom we place our faith. And so if we are placing our faith in someone who is strong, reliable, faithful, and true, then that is a strong faith because it is placed accurately. And therefore, we are blessed when we place our faith in God because he is worthy of our faith, because he is truly faithful. He is strong. He is consistent. He cares for us. See, within Paul's context, he establishes obedience and faith upon the Son, who is both Messiah and Lord. He does not go into some sort of like cultural musing about why, ultimately, that we should be obedient and faithful. He goes to the very character and nature of the Son of God. He is Messiah, therefore you ought to have faith in him. He is Lord, therefore you ought to obey him. And then from this more broad biblical framework, we see that God himself 
is, is the one who is worthy of our obedience and God is the one who is worthy of our faithfulness because he is sovereign and because he is reality. He is true. This is truth and beauty in harmony within the character of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But here's the glitch. The glitch is that we do not live within this duality. We don't live within this duality in, in harmony. This transformational power of grace has often not led us because of our sin, has often not transformed us into a person, into a people who are both obedient and faithful. And this is a problem because that sin, to not be a faithful people is to sin. This is a sin of omission, of failing to do what we ought to do. And when we are not obedient, also sin of omission, when we do not comply, submit, and obey what God has told us to do. See, what's really tricky about uh, it all is that I don't think often, many times, we even know that we're doing it. You see, I think it's because we often come to God with a singular view, a one-dimensional view of who he is. It's what we do with people is that we view people in a singular kind of way. And so if I only look at God as that, that he is Lord over all things, I will only have a faith that is reflective of that particular trait or aspect of his nature. If I see God only as the one who cares for me or the one who is present with me or the one who loves me, then all of my faith will simply come from that, that singular view of who he is. To have a whole view of God is to have a robust and holistic view even of myself and my, my faith in him. We do this with people too, though, don't we? We have a, a singular view of who they are. I think this happens most often when we're in a grocery store or when we're on the train and we have a bad interaction with someone. We have no idea what their day was like. We have no idea of the whole person. But then we retell that story of that bad interaction. And instead of saying this person did a rude thing, a lot of times we say that person was rude. We take a, a singular action and make it into a whole character trait, a whole quality of the person. And this is often what we can do with God, is that we have seen perhaps a particular passage or we have believed he's behaved a particular way and therefore we only have a singular or one-dimensional view of who God is and this begins to lead us to either only live in obedience or only live in faith and certainly not in both. Let, let me see if I can help break this down for us a little bit more by taking us to London because that's, I guess, where we go and figure out such things. Um, but about 10 years ago, Acclaimed atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, took out an advertisement on a number of buses in London. And the ad read this, this way. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. There's probably no God. So stop worrying and enjoy your life. What, what Dawkins, I think, espouses is a kind of beauty without truth a faith with, without submission, this idea, this ascent intellectually, that there's probably no God, therefore go live beautifully, go, go enjoy life. So to be sure, the whole of this idea that, that he comes with comes from a particular view of God, right? Because if, if we stop believing in God and then we will stop worrying and then we will start enjoying our life, what it says about God, or at least our view of God, is that God is the one who makes me worried. God is the one who is an overwhelming presence who ultimately steals my joy and steals my enjoyment in life. And so Dawkins espouses in this particular bus ad that, that you should abandon the thought of God. He probably doesn't exist 
And so you can stop worrying and you can start enjoying your life. The solution offered to the people of London about 10 years ago is to disregard God so that their fears would be dispelled and their enjoyment of life would return. See, Dawkins' idea is actually rooted in an ancient philosophy back in a 300 BC. Back in the third century BC, uh, Epicurus was a Greek philosopher and he gave rise to really a very persistent philosophy that we now call Epicureanism within philosophical thought, which essentially summarized this way, N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, summarizes Epicureanism this way, that, that God or the gods may perhaps exist, but if they do, they are far away and remain uninvolved with the world. See, just a few decades before Jesus was born, Epicureanism was sort of resurrected by a, a poet, um, again, just before Jesus was born. And therefore the appeal of Epicureanism was really reintroduced to the Greco-Roman world soon before um, Jesus steps on to earth's dirt, if you will. In fact, one of the Apostle Paul's most famous and powerful moments, he addresses a crowd in the presence of a group of Epicurean philosophers. So meet me in Acts chapter 17. Keeping in mind that what is being espoused here is a particular view of God where there's a truth, there's an assent to an idea that we ultimately are not living in an obedience. It's a kind of faith without obedience. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 and, and verse 18, and then we'll move down to verse 22. Acts 17, verse 18. So some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, that's Paul. And some said, what does this babbling, a babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is, was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And now move down to verse 22. I want, I want to read the whole uh, of Luke's, or rather Paul's address that Luke records here in Acts chapter 17. So that we get a picture of Paul himself dealing with a kind of worldview of faith without obedience. Faith without obedience obedience. Verse 22, Acts chapter 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being a Lord of heaven and earth does not live in, the, in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or an imagination of man, the times of ignorance and God overlooked, but now he commands all people 
everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul masterfully begins with their ethereal faith, this general idea, even speaking about this unknown God. They have a belief system. They have a faith. Then Paul, from there, describes God as one who not only creates everything, but is fully engaged with the world. Again, this is directly contra the Epicurean idea of the day. Lastly, what Paul does is that he brings them to obedience and repentance. See, the Epicurean life is a life of faith and no obedience. And so Paul starts with what they understood, this general faith, and then he crystallizes it down to a God who has created and a God who is engaged, and then the God who is here and a God who is with us, therefore a God who commands, demands our surrender and our obedience. This is the trusted view, I think, with, in, in many, continually with many uh, subsections of Western culture, this idea of faith without obedience. It's the enjoyment of spirituality, of religious experience, without the need to surrender to the Savior or to the Lord. And so what Paul actually communicates here, this is incredible, that faith without obedience is not faith. It's unbelievable. A faith that never touches the ground is not worth giving your life to. It's fiction. Faith without obedience is not faith. Let's think about it. Never mind the sort of illogic of finding peace uh, from worry and freedom to enjoy your life without a being who defines peace and defines joy. This is what the bus ads completely missed in London. Let's even put that aside. We won't, we won't, don't have time to deal with that. But who, let's think about this, who has the privilege to stop worrying and just enjoy life? Rich people. People who can avoid and purchase comfort and away from suffering. People who are in the majority, who don't have to face suffering on a daily basis because of malnutrition and corrupt governmental tendencies, whether in their present or in their particular region's past. You see, someone who has a kind of faith that doesn't need obedience is coming from a place of privilege. Faith without obedience is a marginalizing of lawlessness. It's a marginalizing kind of lawlessness that puts you to the fringes. See, this is a life with beauty, perhaps, or at least some sort of fabrication of it, but no truth. And it's not beautiful. Faith and obedience, truth and beauty, they belong together. A kind of ideology, whether it's shellacked on a bus or believed in the heart that leaves out the poor and marginalized is a kind of faith that has no real tactic uh, on the ground, dirt level, human heart. There's nothing of substance to it. This is not a kind of faith to give our life to. The reason Dawkins and his team began to run these ads, you'll not be shocked by this, was in response to some Christians and their ad campaign. A Christian organization had been, uh, just before Dawkins and his team, putting verses all over buses throughout London 
And many of the verses they selected were really verses of condemnation, of speaking about sin, of making clear about the brokenness and folly and trajectory of hell that these people were on. What's fascinating is that this kind of response or this kind of evangelism or reaching out to people comes from a similar view of God that Dawkins and his people had. That God ultimately is one to be feared, that God is ultimately one that we should worry about and be anxious about, that ultimately is take, not, not about the beauty and enjoyment of life, but is about turn or you're going to burn, right? But the pathway that the Christians suggested was that they should believe in a God based on a particular kind of compliance or obedience to his word. That, that ultimately how to deal with this God who is causing so much worry and stealing so much joy is to just obey him and to follow him. Now, these passages are certainly from the Bible, but they were delivered in hopes of conjuring obedience with no grace and no relationship. This was the very issue, this kind of obedience with no grace and no relationship, a kind of obedience without faith. This was the very issue that bothered Jesus about the Pharisees, that led him to teach the um, parable of the prodigal son. So please turn to Luke chapter 15. If you're still in Acts, back to the left, a couple of books of the Bible, Luke chapter 15. Again, here we'll explore the equal but opposite view of what it looks like to have one and not the other, faith, uh, without obedience in the first and now obedience without faith here in the second. Luke chapter 15, and we'll begin in verse 25. Jesus has been teaching a number of different parables, and this is found within uh, a set of them. He's responding to uh, some Pharisees who were there uh, along with sinners, Luke tells us in the context. And sinners uh, in Luke's context would have been those who are lower classes in society, marginalized, forgotten, left out, looked down upon. Uh, so they're there with the teachers of the law. Jesus begins to tell a story about a son, the younger son who looks at his father and asks for his inheritance. Though his father is not dead, he asks him for money as if he was dead. And this son, famously, many of you perhaps know the story, takes this money, goes to the far off country, Jesus says, spends that money in lavish living and comes to the end of his finances, the end of his friendships, finds himself broken, desiring death, naked, beaten, bruised in his heart, um, and comes to his senses and decides he's going to go home. But he realizes that there's no way, he has no concept of his father, that his father would love him so much that he would receive him back as a son. So he plans to come back as a slave or as a servant to sort of earn back his father's grace and his father's love. And yet, if you know the story, you know that when the younger son gets close, the father sees him, he runs off to him demonstrating his affection for him, his love for him. He runs out and he meets him and he welcomes him back, throws a party, throws a cloak over him and they celebrate. And as that party is still bumping, you can still hear the bass, just have it in the back of your mind. The older brother sort of comes into the focus in the story in Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he didn't say my brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus, his point in the entire story is about the father's lavished affection for his children. This is a story about the father's love for his kids. To be sure, this view is completely in contrast to the view that both people in both bus campaigns had in mind and that many of us have in mind. Not a malevolent God overlording his people, but a God who loves, a God who cares and runs after, chases down his people. However, this is not simply about the father, though he's central. It's not just about the father's love, but about how it is received by the obedient and the righteous. See, remember, Jesus is responding to Pharisees in his midst. Look, look back at verses 1 and 2 in Luke chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's to Jesus. They're, all, they're always drawn to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. This is such an important juxtaposition that the sinners and the tax collectors are drawing near because they want to hear from Jesus. They're eager to hear from Jesus. And the tax collectors, the teachers of the law, these scribes, these, these men of the book grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Essentially what Jesus does is tells a story about those two groups of people who are in his midst. Jesus tells three parables in response to these uh, Pharisees in particular, and they're grumbling. And what's Jesus' point? Is that truth and beauty is not only uh, an, an ugly sort of idea that, that perhaps they would think about, or truth rather without beauty is not merely ugly, but it's not true. It's not real. The truth is undercut by beauty's absence, or, or rather the doctrine, the teaching, the obedient faith is undercut by a lack of love. See, to place it back in the language that Paul is writing to the Roman church, obedience without faith is an impossibility. See, these Pharisees, like the older son, did all that the Lord required of them, but they failed to simply believe, to receive the Father's love and to love him in return, see, we, we want structure and morality. We want to be good moral people. I think many of us have this sort of impulse and desire to be good moral people. But God does not always have our hearts, does he? See, we, we often come to him so that we can get our, our act together and we can have a good moral life, but we don't love him. This is an obedience without faith. See, faith without obedience is a lawlessness, but obedience without faith is legalism. See, when we live uh, this way, Jesus is not our Messiah and our Lord. We sort of pick 
He's not, he's not our master. He's not our savior. He's not the wholeness of who he has revealed himself to be. He's not our hope. He's not our devotion. He's not the one we submit to and the one that we cling to and trust. We have belittled him. See, Paul tells his readers that his apostleship is committed to bringing about the obedience of faith, not just obedience and not just faith. The gospel brings this union of truth and beauty, of obedience and of faith, because on our own, they just don't exist. This harmony does not exist without a miraculous work of God. So Paul has commissioned them to bring together two things that by our human brokenness are not together. They are not bound to one another. They've been separated. See, so in our sin, we often become one or the other, or, or rather, I think what's probably better, it's, it's the wrong question to ask, where do you fall? Faith and no obedience or obedience or no faith. The better question is, when do you fall in one category and when do you fall in other? See, it may be helpful to think about these two things, but I think there's something unique is happening in our cultural moment that we are no longer living in one or the other in a kind of life of faith without obedience or obedience without faith. We have grown up, many of us perhaps in moralistic homes and, and abided by those rules, but now we live in the city and we've sort of given ourselves over to this more modern faith spirituality without the grounding of God's word and the clarity of his righteousness. In other words, we, we dabble in a little bit of both of these worlds, in lawlessness and legalism. Let me explain it this way, and please remember how much I love you. Let me explain it, that in general, we are obedient, we are moral, we are structured in accordance with God's word as long as it serves us. As long as it serves us. We are submissive to God, as long as we want to be. We'll be at church on time. We'll open up our Bibles, albeit perhaps digitally. Every, every, and, and yet, though we're coming to church, though we're opening our Bibles, we still drink well beyond what we can take. We still dabble in all manner of sexual impropriety and relationships that we know are busted and broken and harming us and really are just about our pure physical enjoyment and not about the holiness that God requires. See, even, even perhaps while we are doing these sorts of things, while we're not loving our neighbors, while we are simply hiding away out of principle and about being safe and good stewards of our resources and not extending ourselves to our neighbors. It's not just drinking. It's not just sex. It's the way that we righteously live in our own kind of indignation and are not obedient to the wholeness of who God has revealed himself to be in his word. See, but even when those stuff, when those things are going on, when we're not living in a way that we know that we're supposed to live, we, we ultimately then go, okay, well, once I come to my senses, then I'll have faith. I'll have faith and I'll know that God will forgive me. He'll be like, it's cool. I know that you had a hard week at work. And all of a sudden God becomes like our buddy and that his uh, sort of the ascent that we have to faith is that he'll just forgive all of the things that we have done without any sort of consequence, without any sort of harm or hurt. But sin is killing us. Sin is harming us. It's sinful to attempt on our own to combine tr truth and beauty. We don't do it well. Faith and obedience are not brought together by our own merit and by our own good. It must come together by grace. Otherwise, it results in idolatry and sinfulness and patterns of brokenness. 
See, ultimately, we don't drink too much because we don't trust the Lord. Or rather, we drink too much because we don't trust the Lord. And we, we sleep around and don't trust in the, the process and point of God's romantic charter in the scriptures because we don't trust his love. See, these things merely reveal we don't love our neighbors well because we don't trust that God will provide for us, and so we don't want to give generously. We've even convinced ourselves that sin is more thrilling than righteousness. We've convinced ourselves in this brokenness that sin is more enjoyable than righteousness. And so we just go ahead and do the thing we want to do because it will be fun and it will be more enjoyable, we believe, than holiness and righteousness. And then we say, we'll come back to God and ask for forgiveness and he'll forgive us. In other words, we continue sinning and believe that grace will increase but the scriptures tell us that that's just not the case. What we are actually revealing when we do that, when we sort of pick and choose when to comply and when to live frivolously, when we choose how to be obedient and how to be faithful on our own terms and not together, what we really reveal is that we are not obedient and we are not faithful. We have neither obedience nor faith. We have neither truth nor beauty. Rosaria Butterfield I think captures this well in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She writes, are Christians victims of this postmodern world? No, she says. Sadly, Christians are co-conspirators. We embrace modernism's perks when they serve our lusts and selfish ambitions. We despise modernism when it crosses lines of our precious moralism. Our cold and hard hearts, our failure to love the stranger, our selfishness with our money, our time, and our home, and our privileged back turned against widows, orphans, prisoners, and refugees mean we are guilty in the face of God of withholding love and Christian witness. And even more seriously is serious is our failure to read our Bibles well enough to see that the creation ordinance and the moral law found first in the Old Testament is a binding to the Christian as as is as binding to the Christian as any red letter. Our own conduct condemns our witness in the world. Obedience without faith is disobedience. Faith without obedience is disbelief. Truth and beauty are meant to be together. And this is why the incarnation of Jesus is so beautiful. See, in the incarnation of Christ, we have the fullness of God's truth in the flesh. In the face of Jesus Christ, we have the fullness of God's faithfulness and Jesus' own faithfulness to his Father in the flesh. See, as a people... We are meant to aim together to magnify God through our faith and our obedience together as his church because Jesus has saved us by grace. Because of his work, because of his action, because of his sacrifice, because of his obedience, and because of his faithfulness, together you and I can actually live the kind of life that the Apostle Paul is instructing his readers in the first century. See, it's not just an experience, but it's surrender. We desire not simply to count salvation stories as a community, but to be caretakers of the maturation of men and women towards Christ. We gather to pray as much as we gather to make policy, its truth and its beauty. We are the church. It has structure and yet it has reality and truth. 
but it also is held together by the spirit of God and by the living word. See, our hearts are wandering. I think trying to gratify earthly desires and what we find in Jesus, the son, who is at one and the same time Messiah and Lord. Jesus, the incarnation, is the one who is faithful, the one who is obedient, the one who is true, the one who is beautiful, the one who is righteous, and the one who is gracious. He is the resurrected Lord who rules and reigns this very minute, church, in our lives and over the universe. Therefore, we can and must obey him. And we can and must believe in him. You see, in Christ, we can live the kind of obedient faith and faithful obedience that comes together in him. We can see within our church, by God's grace, truth and beauty on full display. And we desire to do this so that the world would see who our God is, that we would represent Jesus to them so that they too would see the truth and beauty of the goodness and the good news of Jesus. Heavenly Father, help us. Forgive us for the ways that we have not been faithful. Forgive us for the ways that we have not lived with faith and lived in obedience. Forgive us for the ways that we dabble in both as it serves us. Help us instead to learn to receive this gracious gift of a new identity which is both true and beautiful because our God is both of those things in perfect harmony. And so we worship you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.